0: Well good evening everyone. It's, it's a very great pleasure for me to be here and to sit in the room with you. And um, the reason that I'm here is that I see you as a group of people who have an interest in meditation. Now, I know some of you are new to this group but many of you have been Involved in this group for some time, so you have an interest in meditation. You've probably developed a daily practice, and uh, hopefully, some of you. Uh, there's many different reasons why people start meditating, but I hope some of you at least uh, are meditating because uh, you would like to achieve the uh, the ultimate goal. Of meditation uh, from the perspective of, of the Buddhist, which is to achieve your own awakening in this lifetime. So, wherever you are in that spectrum new meditators, meditators for a long time, uh, uh, and meditators who may or may not be meditating for the sake of your own eventual awakening to me, it's very important to do whatever I can to help you to be successful in that endeavor. It is, it's wonderful that you have the interest, the dedication, you've applied yourself, you've made space in your life for meditation, and I want you to succeed. And I have just a very short time to speak to you, tonight at least. And so, of course, there's a limit in how much, that, uh, how much help I can be in that process but I'm going to try to be as much help as I can so as Paul said the main thing that I'm talking about uh, tonight is going to be the progress in meditation practice through stages and just to explain that well first of all there's a handout here and I I would like as many of, his, uh, of you as can to have, apparently there's only 17 <coughs> copies, and there's probably twice that many people here, and Paul said that he has uh, emailed you some of my other writings, so anyway, uh, I'd, I'd like as many of you as can to get a copy of this, and maybe more copies can be made available some other time, so let's spread those around. what what I want to acquaint you with is the fact that meditation practice is, is a mental discipline that unfolds according to very distinct and clear-cut stages. And if you understand that and if you apply that understanding then you will be very successful in your practice uh, and your success will come about much more quickly. So and another point that I want to make to you is that the method that I'm teaching um, it isn't something that you should see as an alternative to some other practice that you're already doing or that you've heard about. These stages of mental development, these stages of meditation, are not stages of a particular kind of meditation. They're stages of meditation that reflect the nature of the human mind. And so no matter what meditation practice you do, it's going to evolve through these same stages and you can apply the same uh, understanding, the same ideas to being successful in that. So, for example, no matter what meditation practice you've ever done, have you had the experience of forgetting what you were doing, becoming lost in a thought, having that thought lead to another thought, and then to another, and to another, so you sat there in some period of mind wandering, before you realized that you weren't doing what you intended to do. <laughs> I think that's absolutely universal. Nobody has ever sat down to do any kind of meditation who hasn't had that experience over and over again. Because that, that's the way we are at the beginning of the practice. That's the way your mind behaves. It's the way everybody's mind behaves and uh, what happens if you if you continue to practice and especially if you understand the nature of the mind and uh, you train in the right way is you will very soon cease to have these long periods of mind wandering you will still forget a meditation object and become engrossed in another thought but then you realize it very quickly in a matter of a few seconds and you'll come back to what you were the practice that you were supposed to be doing and then if you continue to practice in the right way you'll get to a point where you sit down and meditate for 45 minutes or an hour or two hours or however long you meditate you will never forget the practice that you're doing in your mind will never you'll never forget, you'll never experience mind wandering when that happens, then, you've, then you're no longer a beginner. Now you've learned to meditate. Now you can start doing the serious stuff. You see, up until that point, what happens is that a lot of your meditation time is spent in mind wandering. And, of course, whatever depth of practice, however in the practice you're doing, you might regard depth. But in terms of depth or intensity or productivity or whatever it is that characterizes really getting something out of that particular session. It won't be limited by the constant interruption of forgetting what you're doing and having to come back to it. The other thing that is universal, you sit down to meditate and when your mind does start to calm down a bit and you are able to stay with the practice for a little while zoom you start going to sleep right that's another characteristic of the human mind and everybody will go through that but if you know how then you can train your mind so that that doesn't happen anymore so I'm just illustrating to you that there are certain stages in the process of learning to do any practice that are the same in certain problems that uh, need to be overcome. So what I'm going to be presenting to you is a a process that is described in stages by which you can successfully move beyond these various obstacles and become very effective in your meditation practice. And where this comes from, um, if you go back to the original teachings of the Buddha, the sutras, you'll find that uh, he describes very, very succinctly in a few verses uh, the progress in the development of uh, uh, concentration and mindful awareness. And he does this in the same way in several sutras. One's called the Anapanasati Sutra, or the Mindfulness of the Breathing. Some of you may have heard of that one. Another one is called the Satipatthana Sutra, the Four Applications of Mindfulness, or the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, as it's sometimes oddly translated into English. And another one is the Sati Sutra, or the Mindfulness of the Body. And in all of these, he starts out with the same basic description of this is how you meditate. That a uh, bhikkhu, gone to, gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree or an empty dwelling, sits down, and, uh, cross-legged, sitting erect, places his mindfulness before him and mindfully he breathes in, mindfully he breathes out. When he breathes in a long breath, he knows he breathes in a long breath. And when he breathes out a long breath, he knows he breathes out a long breath. When he breathes in a short breath, he knows he breathes in a short breath. And when he breathes out a short breath, he knows he breathes out a short breath. This is a description of, it's a very concise description of a whole sequence of meditative training. (coughs) To be able to do what those verses describe, you have to be at that place where your mind's not wandering and where you're not forgetting what you're doing. Otherwise you you can't fulfill that description except for maybe for a moment or two at a time. But even there, you don't have that full awareness and, and that you know immediately if this breath is shorter or longer than the rest. And then it continues on to say, um, experiencing the whole body while breathing in, he trains himself. Experiencing the whole body while breathing out, he trains himself. The wording's changed a little bit now. It's so added the word he trains himself. This is an interesting thing, experiencing the whole body. This is actually something that naturally happens in the development of concentration and mindful awareness. But it's also something that can be used to further develop concentration and mindful awareness. You wouldn't necessarily understand that from those lines. But it is, in fact, the message that was being conveyed at the time. Then he goes on to say, Calming the bodily formations while breathing in, he trains himself. Calming the bodily formations while breathing out, he trains himself. And that also is a very succinct, sort of coded description for the pacification of the senses and bringing the body to a state of stillness and comfort and imperturbability where the meditator is no longer disturbed by by sounds or by physical aches and pains or by any of these other distractions that I know any of you who meditate are familiar with. Now, in terms of the stages that I'm presenting to you, there's ten stages and these verses that I've uh, uh, mentioned so far go only so far in that. In the One Sutra, the mindfulness of of the breath Anapanasati Sutra he continues on and actually carries through to describe the entire ten stages that I'm going to, that my handout is presenting to you and that I'm talking to you about. Um, But anyway, I I mention this because I want you to know the origins of this particular way of training. It starts with the Buddha. It was something, he didn't spell it out. There was no need for him to spell it out. As a matter of fact, these sutras that I'm quoting from, were, uh, they were recited orally for several hundred years before they were ever written down. Right? And in addition to them, there was another uh, whole oral tradition of training. So when somebody was learning to meditate, they weren't trying to figure out how to do the whole practice on the basis of a few lines that, uh, in, a, in the recitation of, of the sutras. They had meditation teachers, who understood the method and were able to guide them. When we look back, we don't find much expansion on this for uh, uh, for many centuries, about a millennium in fact, when another uh, great Buddhist meditation master by the name of Kamala Shila actually laid out this same progress in a little more detail. Uh, and it was called uh, the, in... Uh, uh, it was a uh, a book that he did in Sanskrit, translates as the Stages of Meditation or Karma. And there he expanded on those few verses that the Buddha had originally described the process in, described them in terms of nine stages, which he didn't elaborate on a lot. but. His description does still does provide a lot more useful information than uh, for a meditator than just reading the or hearing the sutras would do. But and I think that once again is the fact that the assumption was that meditation teachers would be able to fill in all the gaps and guide a meditator <laughs> through through these stages. And this has been continued to the present day uh there are some some traditions here and there where you you will find some bit of further expansion on this but mostly it has been passed along from teacher to student for all of these many many centuries and it is unfortunately it isn't well known a lot of the meditation practices in the world have uh have not been maintained at the level that they would be. Um, this, this particular method is very well established and well articulated within the Tibetan tradition and within uh, Mahayana Buddhism as a whole. Yet, there's very few people today who still know how to do these practices and do them effectively. And there was a, in the Theravadin tradition. A lot of this was lost, and then there was a, a new meditation tradition that was introduced by the uh, uh, forest monks of Burma and, and Thailand uh, around the beginning of the twentieth century, which has now come to predominate so i'm I'm offering you something that I think will help you enormously and is not very widely available at this time, but uh, it it is it is there in the traditional uh, meditation texts of the different uh, Buddhist traditions, Mahayana and Theravada, both. But it hasn't really been presented very clearly and openly to people. And I think that's a terrible shame because it can, it, it can make it possible for you to achieve very advanced states of uh, meditation practice much more easily and much more quickly if you know what you're doing and you know how to follow that process. So I'll just briefly describe to you the process. There's ten stages in the way I present it. I added one to Kamala Shilas. When I first started teaching meditation, you know, I assumed that everyone that came to learn to meditate they were interested so of course they had a regular meditation practice and so that was my starting assumption but I discovered that that's not really true and so I added one to Kamala Sheila's nine stages there's now a new first stage called establishing a practice <laughs> so there's ten stages then they divide up in the ten 10 a big number to remember and to follow in a discussion like this. So, there's we'll simplify it down to, to four to describe four major landmark points in the development of meditation that uh, can be identified. Okay. So, you begin to meditate. You're a beginner. You're a novice. And then, If you follow this process, you'll reach this first really important landmark stage in the development of your practice, and that's where you sit down for the entire period of your meditation set, and, uh, well, for the entire meditation set, you never really forget what you're doing, and you never lose awareness of the practice or the meditation object the entire time. That's a major landmark. And it's at that point, according to the traditions, that you would be said to now you are a meditator before you were a beginner trying to learn to meditate. When you can when you can when your mind is stable enough that you don't forget what you're doing for the entire period till the bell rings, now you're a meditator. So Then in the second major landmark stage, as a matter of fact, this this first landmark stage happens, it's the fourth of the ten stages. Then the second major landmark is accomplished when you reach the seventh stage. And this is where you can, if you choose to, remain focused on your meditation object or maintain your practice if it doesn't involve a discrete object to the exclusion of any kind of distraction mental or physical if you're doing if you're using a single meditation object that will be experienced as a kind of single pointedness or exclusive focus you know if this this is your meditation object you place your attention there and you the, your mind does not deviate whatever sounds that there may be in your environment the, they don't only a really loud sound would penetrate and it would not draw your attention away. And you may have the occasional thought, but it just comes and goes kind of in the back of your mind like a whisper, and it doesn't have the power to draw you away. So that's sometimes described as single-pointedness. I think a better description is exclusive focus because it encompasses, you know, if you were doing a... uh, If you were doing a... uh, kind of meditation practice where you were noting whatever uh, arose and passed away. If you did that clearly without being distracted from the process by thoughts that keep coming or memories that pop into your mind and things like that, that corresponds to the same thing. It's exclusive focus. What's happened is you don't, you still have thoughts, but they're now very much in the background. They're not continuous. They know that now they're just Coming and going here and there. And they're more like whispers, they're easy to ignore. And the same thing with physical sensations and things like that. So that's the next major stage in the development of concentration and mindfulness. And this really is what, in the Buddha's description of the sutras, he took us up to when he said uh, calming the bodily formations as while breathing in, he trains himself in calming the bodily formations while breathing out he trains himself. It's that kind of mental stability there. and That is common to the different practices that might be described as Vipassana or Samatha or whatever names that they might go by. That's common to them all. Now if we continue beyond that the next major thing that you arrive at is where this kind of stability of attention becomes absolutely effortless. Because before then, you had to be constantly vigilant because otherwise distractions could begin to creep in and, and start to destroy the uh, focus you had. Or dullness might creep in and you might find yourself sinking into sleepiness. So the, you, you always had to have a certain amount of vigilance and make corrections for it when it happened. But at this stage here where effortlessness arises, that's no longer necessary. Your mind does what you want it to do. In the words of the Buddha, you have a mind that is malleable and wieldy. Malleable in the sense that doesn't you know you direct your attention towards something, it stays there until you want to move it somewhere else. Wieldy in that you can freely move it from one thing to another if you want. So you have you have. Uh, that that kind of concentration. You also have a powerful power of mindfulness that um, in the process of developing to this stage, you have uh, overcome the tendency of the mind to slip into dullness and sleepiness. And so what this means is your mind remains alert, awake, bright. Whatever you happen to direct your attention to is, is seen very clearly. You're you're totally aware of it, without obscuration. So you have these qualities in uh, in effortless uh, uh, in, in the stage of effortlessness, which is the eighth of the tenth stages. Now, an interesting thing happens when somebody's developing their meditation practice and their mind reaches a stage of stability. It reaches a stage of stability because the mind, which is actually not one thing, but a large number of different processes, mental processes, that's what your mind is. Many different things going on at once. Many different things. Each of those mental processes has its own job, its own agenda, and uh, which it's trying to fulfill. And so the tendency is for these different processes to be uh, working against each other. And this causes scattering of the mind. When you reach this stage of effortless, focused, Uh, concentration and mindfulness what's happened is your mind has unified all these different mental processes are now on the same task instead of struggling against each other each one trying to do its own thing lead the mind in, in the direction that corresponds to its job in the whole scheme of things there's a cohesiveness a coherence to the functioning of your mind unification of mind That brings about a state of joy and happiness, which is a really interesting thing. And so your meditation becomes a joyful and happy experience, something that you really enjoy doing. What will have happened in the meditator's body in the course of reaching this point, you'll have gone through a stage where the body feels really still, so still that you hate to move. Even when the bell rings, you don't want to move because it's just so still and comfortable. But then it will have become almost as if it were made of uh, light or insubstantial. And then at at this point, you'll have a body that consists of, of just this feeling of pleasantness. And it's not distracting to you. You don't need to move it. It's not resisting the process of sitting still. You're just sitting there in this very still, very comfortable, very pleasant Feeling body and all ordinary sensations like the pressure of your legs against the mat and and uh, itches and aches in your joints and tightness in your muscles all of that's gone away and all there is is just this pleasant feeling. So there is so there's joy and happiness and pleasure in the body. So now what I'm talking about here isn't foreign to you. What is unusual is when we are able to bring ourselves to this state in meditation. But we have all experienced unification of mind. And we've all experienced the calm, joy, and happiness that's associated with that. Um, Psychologists call it the state of flow. And whenever you do something that you love doing and you're totally absorbed into it, an activity that you really, really enjoy and you you're in that state of flow and that's exactly what we're talking about it's the same thing in meditation it's not some the the uh, the name in Pali for piti and it gets translated in English as rapture and it makes us think oh my goodness this must be something really strange and wonderful but uh, it's meditative joy is the best way to translate it and meditative joy is the same thing as that flow experience that we experience when we're doing something we really like doing and we're totally focused on it and we forgot the whole rest of the world. All of our problems are gone. Nothing else. Our mind is totally unified on what we're doing. The inner sense of happiness and satisfaction just totally fills us up. It's just that this is brought about in a meditative state. Of course, this makes it really easy to do whatever kind of practice that you have to do when your mind's in this totally unified and, and joyful state. So that's the third of the major landmarks and it corresponds. It's a rising corresponds to the eighth stage. Now when you do this in meditation, a lot of times this joy comes on with a lot of excitement and energy and it can be disturbing and the meditator feels like, uh, you know, like, well, I, I got to go tell somebody about this. So they quit meditating. Oh. Or, uh, or they get some crazy idea like, oh, well, I must be enlightened now. <laughs> you, you get over those things but you do have to get over those things because there's an agitation and excitement that's associated with that, uh, that. you see the unification of the mind you're channeling all your mental energy through the same process now which is something you haven't you, you, you haven't often experienced in your life uh, although a lot of people have at one time or another but when all of this mental energy is sort of in one single flow in your mind. It's a little bit difficult to contain and you have to get used to that. And that's what the eighth and ninth stages are about. You get to the tenth stage, the joy subsides to being just a state of mind. It's replaced, uh, not replaced, it's now accompanied by tranquility and equanimity. And so th- this is the tenth stage in this whole developmental process. Now that stage is known as samatha or shamatha in the the sanskrit traditions samatha or shamatha it's characterized by this wonderful stability of mind by uh, powerful mindful awareness by uh, joy by tranquility and equanimity and with these factors present then you can uh, you can uh, take up, for example, if you haven't already uh, attained to insight in the process of getting here, which certainly you could have and probably should have, but if you hadn't then you could take up certain kinds of practices which are intended intended to bring about insight. This is the perfect state of mind in which to do that. Or if you look at the Buddha suttas, there's another direction that you can go which is called uh, the practice of jhanas or absorptions, which I won't try to describe to you too much tonight, but this is really profound deep states of of meditation which are spoken of very, very frequently in the sutras, very often in the Buddha's teaching. He described the path of uh, enlightenment and the purpose of meditation is the development of these jhanas or absorptions. So that's another direction that can be taken. So anyway, all I want to do here is just kind of give you an overview of the 10 stages and, and, and describe the, the high points of them. The next thing I'd like to do is to put this into a context with other practices. But first of all, did you, does anybody have any questions about what I've talked to you about so far? Well, it must have been really clear in my description. Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, does it mean? Uh-huh. I have a question. <laughs> yeah. Um So, uh, what is emptiness meditation? What is is that? Would that be like the last stages? Uh, well, emptiness. When we talk, when we say insight, vipassana, vipassana. Okay, okay we're we're not talking into sort of ordinary, mundane insights like. Oh, that's the why. That's the reason I am this way, because um, my father always did such and such. I mean, that's a very mundane insight. The insights we're talking about are insights into the true nature of the way things are, and the insights which will lead to our awakening. And usually they are most concisely described as being insights into impermanence, emptiness, and uh, the uh, dissatisfactoriness of phenomena. So, meditation on emptiness is a kind of insight meditation or a kind of vipassana. And I can can talk more about that later on. I'd really like to. But um, how it would fit into this is that this process that I described, if you go right through to stage 10, which is samatha, it's possible to go all the way through to samatha without having attained any of these super-mundane insights into the true nature of reality. It's possible to have. If you had, then at that point, you would take up practices intended to bring about those insights. But it's quite likely that you would have already achieved uh, some, at least, of of those insights, or some degree of those insights by that point. Okay. Yes? Very long time ago in Oakland during, in a huge room during meditation. It was uh, commonplace for individuals, not a lot of people, but individuals in this large room during the meditation to um, start to move, mm-hmm. you know, cross-legged. Yeah. They'd almost be coming off the floor. Mm-hmm. And these very unearthly sounds would sort of emit mm-hmm. from their throat. Is that what you were talking about a minute ago about uh, mm-hmm. uh, controlling the meditation? Or um, that they weren't controlling it? No, uh, because I didn't actually mention that. You see what happens with the meditator, especially in the seventh and eighth stages, but it can sometimes happen temporarily, momentarily earlier on. But when a meditator gets to the 7th stage, and definitely the 8th stage, uh, there is a lot of energy moving in their body. So they'll have, they'll have uh, on the one hand, a variety of really strange sensations taking place, but uh, they'll also uh, often tend to feel energy moving in their body. Sometimes that energy will cause their body to move, and sometimes it will cause them to produce sound. Also associated with that is often uh, the, the appearance of lights behind their closed eyelids, hearing some sort of unusual, non-natural sound. Uh, uh, so you have this whole constellation of sensations, movements, light, and sound, which can be very mild and hardly noticeable, or they can be really powerful and really disturbing. It depends on partly depends on the practice a person is doing, partly depends on the individual personality and it partly depends on the expectations in the group. If there's a group of people and some of them start feeling energy and they start rocking and jumping, then when the energy rises for the other people, they'll start doing the same thing. If they're in a group where people don't, they just sit there, you know, and they, and they remain quiet, and, and then talk about it in the meditation reports say, well, I felt all this energy. Well, then the other people in the room won't tend to move and jump nearly so much. <laughs> so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of different factors. Some, for some people, the lights are very intense and they don't feel that much energy in their body. For other people, it's a lot of bodily energy and a lot of movement. And they might say, well, how come I never saw the lights, you know? <laughs> so... But what happens with all of these things, none of these things are important in themselves. They are interesting things that happen as the mind comes into the state of unification and as the senses become pacified and calm. And so they're they're there's sort of a stage that you go through which is in most cases best dealt with by just ignoring it and go back to your meditation object. Although sometimes they will take on an intensity where they may need to be dealt with in a different way. But that's comparatively rare. Uh, Someone behind you for a second. Yes? Um, My sense is that uh, that, um, you lay out a very linear kind of progression. And it's so high sense that it doesn't always work that way. Well, no. uh, You're absolutely right. It's easiest to describe and understand as A linear progression and there are a sequence of skills and abilities that are developed uh, that are reflected in uh, the quality of your meditation but they don't develop in a straight line what happens is it's very cyclical you go ahead and you drop back and you go ahead and you drop back and you gradually sort of these cycles gradually move you forward and then you know, something will happen, and you get really upset, and you'll drop back a few stages, and and then one day, for no reason at all, you'll just jump way ahead, but you never be able to do that again for for six months. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it's it, it sounds it sounds a lot more linear than it really is in practice, but the real value uh, comes in, you know, if you if you understand these stages. Now, on any particular day or any particular meditation sit, you recognize the stage that you're in right now, and then you know exactly how to practice. You know what, what to work with and what to ignore. You know, if you're, if you're at, um, say you're at the, the fourth stage, uh, in that stage, what you want to do, you, you never lose your awareness of your meditation object, but there are other thoughts and sensations that you're aware of, and not infrequently you'll be more aware of some thought than you are of the meditation object you know and so when you're if that's what's happening with you then you don't want to be concerned at all with trying to be single pointed you want to let all those other thoughts be there and just practice recognizing when one of them is drawing you away and bring yourself back so but the idea is to learn to recognize the stages, learn to recognize where you are, and know what practice is appropriate. A really important part of what's appropriate is not to try to do something that you're not ready to do. A lot of people, they get their initial meditation instruction, they're told to sit down and follow their breath, and they think the first thing they're supposed to do is suppress all thoughts and not be aware of anything else. And if you make that mistake, you're not going to have any success at all, but you because you can't do that. You're a long way from being able to do that. Instead, when you first sit down, all you want to do is try to not forget what you're doing. When you get to the point where you don't forget what you're doing, never before that do you want to think about trying to uh, to do anything about all of the other thoughts and all of the other sensations and stuff that you're aware of. You just let that be and concentrate on the task in front of you. That's the most important thing about these stages and knowing what stage you're at and practicing accordingly is you don't try to do something that you can't do in that stage. So and these stages are following, you know, I mean what they're what they're coming from is is the way our minds inherently, innately, naturally are, and the way they normally work. So when you start out uh, your mind, you sit down, and you close your eyes, and your mind does what it all does all day long, every day. You have a limited capacity for conscious awareness. And so it's very important that in the course of your day that you pay attention, since you have a limited amount of attention to pay, that you pay attention to things that are important. So what your mind does, and you're really glad that it does it, is when you've been paying attention to one thing for a little while and it no longer seems so important, your mind will start looking around for something more important to pay attention to. Or even if what you're paying attention to is still important, your mind keeps checking around to see whether there's something else that's come up that's more important and maybe there needs to be a shift. And that's a really good thing, right? You would not function very well in the world if your mind didn't do that so of course you sit down to meditate and your mind's going to keep on doing the same thing so you've got to train it to behave in a different way and and you don't do this by suppressing that particular aspect of behavior of your mind because it's good and important and you want when you get up again you want your mind to go back to functioning that way so instead what you do is you train other faculties of your mind that you already have, and you make them stronger, and you learn to to uh, elicit their activity during your meditation, so it serves your ends. So, for example, you sit down to meditate. After a few minutes, the meditation object is no longer that interesting, so the mind goes and it finds something else. But at some point, there's some other part of your mind that is been that checks in every now and then to see what you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing, and it'll check in, and you'll suddenly become aware that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So you, to start out with, all you do is reinforce that mental process. You know, now if you sit there and get mad at yourself because you forgot what you were doing, that's not going to do any good at all. The mental process that made you forget what you're doing is <coughs> essential for your survival. And it's not going to quit doing that just because you get mad at yourself. On the other hand, the the part of your mind that knows what your intentions are and every now and then checks in to see what if you're doing what you're supposed to, well, that one functions all the time anyway, too. It's completely normal. It's a part of your mind. So you don't try to suppress one normal function. Instead, you try to enhance the other. So you feel good about realizing that your mind had wandered instead of feeling bad because your mind had wandered. The positive reinforcement of recognizing that you weren't doing what you intended to do is going to cause that one mental process to become stronger, to happen more often, to happen more easily, and lo and behold, after a little while you find that you catch yourself in this mind wandering more and more quickly by positively reinforcing that. You direct your attention over and over again, you know when you realize you 're not paying attention to your meditation object, you direct it back. We all have the ability to direct our attention it 's a natural mental faculty uh, and and we make use of it all of the time, but it's we don 't really it 's like exercising a muscle it 's not nearly as strong as it could be, and so you sit down to meditate. And something comes up that's really attractive, and it's difficult to direct your attention away from that back to doing meditation practice. You know what I mean? So you think of it this way: like every time you realize your attention has moved elsewhere, you direct your attention back to the meditation object. You're exercising a mental faculty that you've always had, and it will become stronger until at some point what you'll find is when your attention moves away from the meditation object, it tends to start coming back really easily. It starts coming back on its own. Sustained attention. You know, our attention stays on something for some given period of time, and then it's released to go look for something new. There is a mental process whose job it is, when no matter what it is you happen to be paying attention to at the time, to make some sort of determination as to When is it appropriate to release the attention? You know, it's an unconscious process that you have, but it's functioning all the time. It it decides that, well, you paid attention to this long enough and it releases the attention to go elsewhere. And we can call that function sustained attention. You know? We've got a mental an unconscious mental process whose that's function is to sustain the attention. And so what you're doing when you come back to your meditation object and you try to engage with it fully, and you try to stay with it as long as you can, and maybe you use counting, or maybe you use uh, verbalization, or you use, there's all kinds of tricks you can use to help you stay with it longer. And if you do that, you're training that unconscious faculty of sustained attention. And the end result is your attention is going to sustain, be sustained longer and longer. So this is what I mean about You understand how your mind works, Train it in ways that make sense by positively reinforcing those mental processes that serve your goal, which is to become a really good meditator. And by being very careful to avoid any of those those things that get in the way. Any kind of negativity, any kind of impatience, restlessness, dissatisfaction, comparing how well you meditate to somebody else, comparing how well you meditate today to how well you meditated yesterday, feeling disappointed because you're not making more progress, feeling angry at yourself because you're falling asleep, feeling angry at yourself because your mind wandered, those will poison your progress. To the extent that any of those is there, you're going to slow yourself down greatly, and you may get stuck. And of course, those same thought processes get stronger, and then next thing you know, it's really hard to make yourself even sit down and practice. So, in, anyway, so to kind of get the, the gist of this, this is a, a systematic process of making use of the actual nature of the mind itself to train the mind to do what you want it to do. And that's the, the word for meditation in uh, the Pali language. Uh, the, the Buddhist word for meditation is bhavana, and it means mental training. So that's what meditation is, mental training. Training your mind in certain qualities. Now the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about before I run out of time, just to give you a perspective so that you can put this to use, is how what I'm talking about, this this system of systematic stages, how it fits in with any of the other practices that you may be familiar with. And I'll do that by okay, we're talking Buddhist meditation here. Okay, the system, the twenty five hundred year old system of practice, the ultimate purpose of which is to bring you to awakening or enlightenment, which any of you can accomplish in this lifetime. So forget any of those myths about, you know, it might take many lifetimes and so forth. You don't have many lifetimes. That's the only one that you have. So Okay, so Buddhist meditation. We are training basically two abilities of the mind, which uh, the English words that you'd probably associate with these are concentration and mindfulness. The uh, Pali words, the Sanskrit words are very similar. Uh, The Pali words for these two are samadhi, which we usually translate as concentration, and sati, which we usually translate as mindfulness. And so when you use the English word concentration, you're going to understand it in the context of your life and experience and the way concentration is used uh, as a term in our society in this period of time. And for a lot of you, concentration means forcing your mind to do something you don't really want to do. Concentration is memories of high school algebra homework. (laughs) Um, But the word samadhi, although it carries all the same... uh, Concentration is a good translation for it. But what samadhi means, if we examine it, it means... Stability of attention, it means that your attention remains fixed on one thing for as long as you want it to. And in the Buddhist definition of samadhi, there is an ordinary kind of samadhi, which is not particularly wholesome. And then there is a kind of samadhi that's associated with meditation, which is considered to be very wholesome. Ordinary samadhi is when your attention remains fixed on something because it is the object of your desire or the object of your hatred or there's something about the thing that makes itself important to you in your mind. So it's very easy for your mind to stay on it. So that's, that's ordinary, everyday samadhi. You know, and we could call that concentration, but you notice it doesn't involve any implication of force. It's not like algebra homework. So ordinary, everyday samadhi is your mind remains fixated on things that are interesting, fun, sexy, um, you know, whatever. They have some quality that, that makes it easy for you to keep your attention fixated on them. Now, wholesome samadhi is a samadhi that is achieved through mental training through through Bolana or meditation so that you place your mind on something that is not inherently interesting to you by virtue of desire or aversion but rather you've trained your mind so that it does what you want so you generate the intention to pay attention to a particular thing and your mind stays with that thing as long as you want it to so that's that's samadhi, okay. Samadhi has the quality of attentional stability. Samadhi has, in addition to that, the quality of being able to encompass as much or as little as you want it to. So you know, it's like like uh, your attention is like a flashlight beam, which you can. Point at and hold directed at any one thing for as long as you want to. It also has the quality that you can turn the lens and you can illuminate a large area or you can illuminate just a very small area. That's another quality of samadhi that you cultivate. So in meditation, you want you need to cultivate mental stability in these two forms. Stability of movement of attention instability of scope of attention and you cannot do any meditation practice at all without a sufficient degree of samadhi. Do you see the truth of that? It's absolutely impossible. So if you ever hear anybody suggest that you don't need samadhi to do this meditation practice, you know, well that's silly. That means that they don't know what samadhi is. Okay. So, and the other thing the other word then is sati. We translate that as mindfulness. And that's accurate but misleading. Sati means fully conscious awareness. It means whatever you're paying attention to, you're totally awake, you're totally alert. It has a quality of intensity and clarity. Well, intensity means that you're... you're seeing what's actually there. You're feeling the sensations that are actually taking place. You have that intensity of awareness. It also is free from obscuration. That's what the clarity part of it means. You know how it is when you look and you see what you expect to see instead of seeing what's there? That's lack of clarity. Camouflage works on that principle, right? And as a matter of fact, most of us go through our life seeing and hearing and so forth more what we expect to than what's actually there. So sati is developing the power of your conscious awareness. Some of you may have been in a dangerous situation, a car accident, uh, something like that, where your mind snapped into a state where you were crystal clear, everything seemed to slow down, and you were aware of every little detail, details that you would not ordinarily be aware of. This shows you the degree of sati that your mind is capable of. And uh, sati is one end of a spectrum, the other end of a spectrum is where you fall asleep. So between sleep and between that really intense awareness that you might experience in an emergency situation, you can be anywhere along that scale. Most of us go through our daily lives sort of down there in the... probably about the, the middle third of the way down the scale towards being asleep, you know, not even in the, only in the middle when uh, something really interests or excites us. Um, athletes learn to, they call it the zone, they learn to develop this high level of of sati, a fully conscious awareness, so that, you know, a baseball player who's learned to do this, uh, the the pitcher is in slow motion, and the ball coming towards him is slow enough that he can adjust the swing of his bat, even though that ball may be traveling 90 or 100 miles an hour. So that's what you're capable of. And this is what you need to develop. You you, you don't need to be in the zone all the time. But to achieve the goals of Buddhist meditation, which are to investigate phenomena enough to achieve insight and to awaken you have to have a certain reasonable level of sati. Because if you don't, now if you're half asleep, you're not you're not if you're not going to penetrate the uh the nature of reality and, and have these insights. You've got to be fully awake, fully alert. You can't have a lot of obscuration. You've got to have clarity. You've got you've got to remove all the prejudgments so that you're you're really seeing what's there. So when you meditate, you're developing not only samadhi, but sati, the power of mindful awareness. And you have to develop both of these together. And uh, if you succeed in doing this, you'll have, as the Buddha said, a mind that's malleable and wieldy, which is describing the concentration faculty, and that is bright and clear, that has has this powerful samadhi, or sati rather. So, samadhi and sati are always developed together. If you develop samadhi without sati, if you develop concentration without staying alert and aware, what will happen is you'll slip into a dull, trance like state. You might fall asleep, or, you know, uh, what happens far too often, you can develop concentration so you sit there for an hour and, and just this spaced out state. And it's true there's no thoughts. It's true there's no awareness of distractions. It's true that you were kind of, sort of, aware of the meditation object the whole time. And you feel really relaxed and peaceful afterwards. And you might say, Boy, that was great. I don't know where I went. Man, I was gone. Well, that's, that's not what you want to do. Okay, That's what happens when you develop concentration without mindful awareness. Without fully conscious mindful awareness, that's a dead end. It won't take you anywhere. So you got to develop them together. And also, you can't you 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 can't really cultivate sati without samadhi. Um, you know, if you if your mind is in that heightened, high, hyper alert state, but you have no attentional stability, it's going to just start jumping around on you. And, and you're not going to be able to really investigate something. You know, uh, the, the mind state that arises when somebody is uh, in an emergency situation can be very focused because of the, um, whatever the immediate danger is that they have to deal with. But if you examine what happens to their mind when it's still energized to that degree afterwards they cannot think straight they can't they can't put their shoes on because their mind is it no longer has a focus it's just got this really high heightened state of energy so sati and samadhi always go together and if you meditate properly you develop samadhi and sati together now there's two other terms Samatha, which i've already mentioned to you and vipassana or insight and I'll put those in the context as well. Samatha is a word that describes the culmination of the development of samadhi and sati. If you, this corresponds to the tenth stage, and that tenth stage, as I described, when you have developed samadhi and sati to the point of a unified mind imbued with joy, tranquility, and equanimity, with that powerful, Samadhi and Sati, that gives rise to joy, tranquility and equanimity. That is what's called samata. So it's something that's attained as a result of this practice if you carry it through to its culmination. Vipassana, Vipassana, insight. Uh, vipassana means special insight. And Vipassana is also something that is attained. It's insight into the way things really are. It's a direct realization that uh, that not just impermanence in the sense that things arise and pass away, but that there is nothing but change. And insight into emptiness which is that in this in this reality in which enduring things are a figment of the mind and the truth is nothing but process continual process that these processes are selfless and that's what's called the truth of emptiness you see the emptiness of things that the processes are selfless and then further, when you realize that if there is clinging of the mind to endearing objects that don't really exist in a world that consists of only process, and if you attempt to protect and gratify a self that doesn't really exist, that the only possible result is suffering. That's these. These are the insights that you're that you're after, okay? And when you come to these understandings, we can say that you have vipassana. So, vipassana is an attainment of understanding. Samatha is an attainment of a full development of mental skills. Okay. Now, some some people say, well, there's two kinds of meditation. There's Samatha meditation and his Vipassana meditation or his concentration and his mindfulness. And I'd like you to examine this and realize that it's not really true except in the most relative of senses. Because any meditation practice you do must involve the simultaneous development of Samadhi and Sati. It's only a Samatha meditation if your intention is to pursue it to the point of attaining samatha. And it's only an insight meditation if your aim is to pursue it specifically for the sake of the attainment of insight. But the basic processes are, are not really different. What you have to do in both cases is you have to develop sufficient samadhi and sati Uh, before you can decide whether you want to make any divergence in directions or not. In terms of those seven stages, when you get to the seventh stage, you can start doing Vipassana practices. And there are many different Vipassana practices from all these different traditions. And they're called Vipassana practices because they are practices that are designed to guide the mind, or in some cases even trick the mind, into achieving insight attaining insight but you could also decide to continue to develop to the point of samatha before taking up insight practices or and this is the best way to do it is you develop samatha and vipassana both together in the sense that from the time you begin to meditate you you develop insight at the same time that you're you're developing the samadhi and sati and so by the time you get to the right stage in the process you've got both samatha and vipassana will develop and you achieve awakening so so there's not really this such a big differentiation in kinds of meditation so if you if you if you take up a vipassana, if you I mean this is called a vipassana group, right? So presumably most of you have a primary association with one of those meditation practices which is given the label vipassana. But just so you recognize, there's no such thing as a meditation that is vipassana. Vipassana is something that you hope to attain, and if you're doing a meditation that carries the label vipassana, it's because you're hoping that that meditation is going to lead you to achieve insight. But if you can also see that even though you might start out from day one doing a practice that you put the label Vipassana on, you still have to develop both Samadhi and Sati hand in hand. You can't, you know, if and if and you until you have the Samadhi, you're not going to be able, to, you're not going to have a hope of achieving a, a, an insight because your mind will be too unstable. It won't stay, uh, it won't stay focused enough to examine uh, things thoroughly enough. And while I'm at it, I should point out to you that when you, when you reach that stage of concentration that is effortless, it doesn't need to be fixed on the same object. A, A single object, a fixed object practice is a very useful way to rapidly reach that stage of of effortless concentration. Once you've reached it, you no longer need to practice that kind of fixed object single-pointed meditation. At that point, your mind can move like lightning from one thing to another and follow anything that's happening. And anything that it lights on, even though it's only for a brief time, it will penetrate into with full mindful awareness. And the name for that practice of concentration is called kanika or momentary. And it's not that your concentration is momentary, it's that the object of concentration is only held momentarily. So, uh, And so if you want to do the insight practices that are intended to reveal impermanence, you see, there's impermanence, there's emptiness, there's suffering. Different insight practices are directed towards primarily revealing one or another of these and uh, the inside practice of noting the rise and fall of the abdomen and noting the rise and fall of thoughts and sounds and things like that that particular practice is intended to bring you to the place where you develop kanaka samadhi you will actually come to the place in that practice that corresponds to the to the eighth stage of these eight stages and it's at that point that you will begin to realize the true meaning of impermanence. But and, and if you follow if you follow that practice, if you follow that noting, the Mahasi style vipassana practice, you'll actually go through all of the eight stages, just as they're laid out here. Of course, you'll get to the eighth stage, and when the joy comes up, your meditation teacher will tell you to start. Noting more, until the joy goes away. Mm -hmm. But other than that, the practice is exactly identical up to that point. And and that is the point in the practice where you have kanaka or momentary samadhi. The other kind of concentration that you have when you reach that eighth stage is that taking neither a fixed object nor moving the attention from object to object, but rather what you can do because of the stability of mind that you achieve You can open the awareness up so it becomes expansive and space-like. And you can allow thoughts and sensations to arise and pass away without the mind sticking to them at all. Your mind just remains open, perfectly stable, and things pass through it. And that's called uh, Mahamudra, and there's also a version of uh, what's called choiceless awareness practice, which is the same thing. So to do all of these inside practices, uh, you need that level of concentration that I'm talking about here. So uh, if you were starting out doing one of those practices right from the beginning, you're still going to have to develop to the same stage of concentration before you can actually do the, the sort of, the, the, do the practice in a way that is uh, going to lead you into some form of insight.